God, before us, God, beside us, God, behind us, God, above us, be also now between us, a bridge through which your truth may move. In the name of the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. 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 With me. All Saints Day. That is what we're celebrating today, the Feast of All Saints. You'll see down here this uh, poster board that we have that we made during Christian education. These are the saints of people, both dead and alive, that have meant something to them, something in their hearts, had an imprint on their lives, and these, their pictures are here for us to see today. I heard this joke the other day, thanks to Christy Horde. An Episcopal priest down in Pensacola. I'm going to tell it to you here. I want you all to think I'm a fun-loving priest. You know, my first Sunday here. <laughs> priest is there. You know, he's in a small town, small town church. He's got to mow the yard. And so he calls a parishioner and says, you know, I'll do it from this point forward, but I really don't have the time. Could you bring a mower over here and mow the yard? He said, sure. So he brought the lawnmower over. He mowed the yard. Everything was great. Three weeks later, it was time to mow the yard again. So the priest gets the mower out. He left it at the church. And he's out there, and he, he gets the starter cord. And he pulls it. Nothing. Right? He gets the starter cord. He pulls it. Nothing. So he calls the parishioner. He says, what's going on? You know, I have, um, it worked fine three weeks ago. I haven't done anything to it. It's just sat there. It's not working. And so the parishioner says, oh, it, it works. You just have to cuss at it. <laughs> So I have to do what? He said, yeah, you just got to curse at it. You're really loud. Lay a few on the mower and it'll, you crank it up. It'll start right up. He said, I haven't, I haven't cussed in 30 years. <laughs> and the parishioner said, well, give it a few tugs and they'll all come back to you. <laughs> I love that. And that, that's kind of the way we think about a saint, right? Somebody that you know, they don't do this, they don't do that, they surely aren't cussing, they're doing it, they're above reproach. That's one way to think about a saint. But there's another way to think about a saint, right? Um, somebody who is, um, does things bigger than life. You know, it's somebody that really does things that in our minds matter, right? Like a Mother Teresa or a Martin Luther King Jr. I mean, they're saints. I mean, surely there's not enough room in heaven for, for little people like the rest of us, right? They're saints. You know, they're, we're, not, we're not saints like that. And so we can kind of get into that idea that a saint's got to be above reproach and a saint's got to be somebody that's doing something bigger than life. And we're conditioned to think that way in the Western world in some ways that everything's got to be bigger. It doesn't matter. Everything bigger is better, right? Whether it's a business, whether it's a church, whether it's a house, whether it's a car, you know, why buy a simple can or jar of Peter Pan peanut butter when you can get one at Sam's that's as long as your arm, you know, it's this tall. Surely that's better because it's bigger, right? I don't care if you can't go through it, it's going to take you two years, it's better. And we begin to think like that. And we begin to condition ourselves to think like that and look at the world like that. And we begin to think about our own lives like that. 
And so as I read today's gospel, I began to think about small things. And I asked my wife, what would you do if you met the smallest person in the world? She thought for a minute and she said, well, I guess I'd kneel down and I'd pick him up and hold him. I said, no, not, not the smallest person in terms of stature. I mean the smallest person in the world, the one who matters the least, the one whose life to the world is inconsequential, the one who is absolutely and utterly powerless. What would you do if you met the smallest person in the world? Would you even notice it? Would you even see them? And when we think about the smallest person in the world, naturally, we are going to begin to think about someone out there. You know, it's someone in a country that has no resources, no power, someone who has food scarcity or shelter scarcity. And that's true. But they're also right here. And I know a bunch of you are probably thinking, Oh no, preacher's going to start naming names, right? I'm not going to do that. But it's me, and it's you, it's us. Because I don't know about you, but lately I have felt like the smallest person in the world. Utterly helpless to change things without any power whatsoever, as if anything I say or do doesn't matter in the midst of a world that at times feels like it's gone utterly and hopelessly out of control. In a time where there is vitriol that spills out in such a way that somebody would walk into a house of worship and kill people just because of what they do, just because of who they are. And my heart is utterly broken when I think about Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania and what happened at the Tree of Life Synagogue. The two brothers, Cecil and David Rosenthal, they had attended services there since their boyhood. Now in their 50s, they greeted people at the door with hugs and hellos. Rose Malinger, 97, she attended weekly services at that synagogue longer than I have been alive. Bernice and Sylvan Simon, 84 and 86, seen walking down the street holding hands. Irving Younger, Melvin Wax, Daniel Stein, Jerry Rabinowitz, Richard Godfrey, Joyce Feinberg, all of them deserve to have their names spoken out loud. But all of them the world would look at as small. And when I look at what happened there and what I can do, I feel small. This man, even at the hospital, after he had shot these people dead, came in there and he says, I want to kill all Jews. A world filled with that kind of hatred 
where people begin through their words calling names and turning people into caricatures. Because when I can turn you into something less than human, when I can come up with a name for you, you know, whatever it is, oh, he's just a Jew, or oh, it's just a woman, or he's just Irish, or he's just whatever, you fill in the blank. You become less than a person who has feelings, less than a person who has children, less than a person who walks and moves and has feelings. You become no more than a piece of paper that I can literally and figuratively crumple up. I can destroy you. I can kill you. Through my words and through my actions. And what do you do in the face of that? What do we do? We weep. But today's gospel gives power to those tears. Today's gospel creates a revolution of water that, in my opinion, from this place and from places like it all over the world, creates a revolution in the world. So we're in John's gospel. What, what's, the, what's the shortest verse in the Bible? That was perfect timing, wasn't it? It was like... Ta-da-da-da, you know, it's announcing the shortest verse in the Bible. You know, I was in a, I was in a church in Montgomery, and we had a phone ring, and we said, I want you to leave your ringers on. I want you to know when you get a call, and I want you to answer the phone, and when they say, hey, what are you doing? You tell them, say, I'm at St. James Episcopal Church, and you should be too. <laughs> anyway, shortest verse in the Bible is Jesus wept. Two words. Two words, but in those words we have an explosion of power into the world. Today's gospel is one of the best-known stories in the New Testament, probably, at least for Christians, one of the best-known stories in the entire Bible. It is the raising of Lazarus, right? We have Jesus, whose friend is ill at one point, and then he dies. We know he's dead because the stench of death was already out there in the world. It was already out there where he was laid to rest. And Jesus arrived and he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out bound with strips of cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. It's the final or the last of the most spectacular and the most spectacular of the seven miracles in John's gospel called signs to show that Jesus was the son of God. Earlier in the 11th chapter, Jesus says, I'm going to wait a while. You know, I don't just want him to be sick. I want him to be dead so that this miracle showing that this is the power of God will be all the more dramatic. A resurrection, not just a healing right here in Lazarus. And it's a big miracle, isn't it? I mean, resurrection, conquering death, right? That God will have power over our greatest fear so that death will be no more. And yet we're so ready to jump right to the miracle that we often skip over the tears. Because we don't like thinking about God crying, do we? 
brings back memories of our childhood, maybe. Stop your whining. Do something about it, right? Crying is for the weak. Crying is not what you do. Step up or lift. Chop, chop. Get on with it. But boy, it's important to me. I think it's important to all of us. Jesus wept over the death of his friend Lazarus. He wept and weeps for the sin that separates humanity from God. Those things we do that bring about literal and figurative death. He wept and weeps over the collective ignorance of the human mind and heart, just like he wept over Jerusalem. He wept with individual people, for individual people, because God cares. God cares for the mighty and for the weak. God cares for the large and for the small. God cares for you and for me. And those tears fall on us and they remind us of God's presence. Because there are times when we think, does anybody really understand? The poem from Wordsworth, She dwelt among the untrodden ways beside the springs of Dove, a maid whom there was none to praise and very few to love. A violet by a mossy stone, half hidden from the eye, fair as a star when only one is shining in the sky. She lived unknown. And few could know when Lucy ceased to be. But she is in her grave, and oh, the difference to me. The tears of God remind us that he cares for Lucy and for all of us. So what's the good news in the crime, though? What is resurrection without tears? I mean, what is new life without some amount of grief? I mean, if God's only word to us is new life and resurrection, what does that say to us when we are hurt or when we grieve or when we feel that we are in a valley, that there is no hope, that there is no scripture, that there is no one around? And all you want to do is talk to me about new life. The tears of Christ remind us that reminds us that God meets us where we are in the midst of our grief, that he doesn't leave us there, but he kneels down with us and joins with us in that. He does not leave us alone, but is with us in the midst of the darkness. Jesus wept reminds us of that. A daughter visits her mother who doesn't recognize her in the final stages of Alzheimer's. Jesus wept, lets her know that while her mother will one day be with God, freed from confusion, for now God is with her, waiting for that day and sharing in her pain. A husband and a wife struggle in a marriage that is more struggle than joy. Jesus wept, reminds them that God is there with them in the midst of it and has the power to bring about new life in what feels dead. A child languishes in the throes of bad decisions, drugs, bad jobs, failed relationships. Parents have lost trust in communication. Jesus wept, lets them know that God shares their exasperation and is waiting for them for that day when he hits rock bottom and asks for help. Jesus wept, shows us where compassion starts, but Jesus wept, doesn't stop 
there. Right? Lazarus wasn't at the Last Supper, was he? Lazarus didn't join the throngs that followed Jesus, because I think, although Scripture doesn't tell us, I think what Jesus said to him is what he said to the Gerasene demoniac and all the others that he healed in Scripture. Go and tell. Go and show them what has been done for you. Don't just stay here, but get up and go and show them that my Redeemer liveth and that my Redeemer is in my life and he has done great things for me and that he brings about life because the weeping leads to life. Philip Yancey tells a wonderful story. He's traveling through India and Nepal and he goes to this um, hospital for leprosy, for those suffering from leprosy. It's a terrible disease. It eats away at your flesh and at your limbs. And he is walking with his wife through the hospital. And he sees something out of the corner of his eye approaching. And he doesn't know what it is. At first he thinks it might be an animal. But then he determines that it's a human being. And it's a woman who has no arms. The disease has taken part of her arms off. She has nothing but stubs. Leprosy has eaten away at her legs as well, and she has no leg from the knee down. She has bloodied bandages from where she's crawled around. And as she approaches Yancey and his wife, he can see as he looks down that she has no nose, and half of her face has been eaten by the disease as well. And he said he looked down at her, and his first thought was revulsion. He didn't even know if it was a woman. But that wasn't, wasn't his wife's first thought. She knelt down next to her and gathered her in her arms. So when Yancey came to his senses, he knelt down as well. And he could hear the woman, her name was Damara. And Damara was a Christian in a place that was mostly Hindu. The director of the hospital came out and said that she was one of their most faithful prayer warriors, that every time the bell rang, she was in the chapel, and she was praying, and she loved to greet everybody that came, and she must have heard them walking and came out to greet them. And so as he knelt down next to Damara and his wife, he could hear her singing in his wife's ear. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. He snapped a picture of it, and he said every time he looks at it, he sees this woman who would have won no beauty contest in the Western world, but she won the one beauty contest that matters the most in life. When he looks at Damara, this deformed, hollow shell of a body, he sees that the Holy Spirit has found a home and that light shines forth from her. That she didn't stay where she was. That maybe she weeps, but joy comes in the morning, right? And she came to everyone and she greeted them in the name of Jesus the Christ and told them about Jesus' love. God found his temple in Damara. And he finds his temple in each and every one of us if we allow him to pick us up from our tears, to allow ours to join his, and to do something. 
So what do we do about it? Because once we're touched by that love, life can't be the same, right? I mean, there's disruption at the heart of healing. We can't stay quiet about the insanity. We can't go along to get along. We can't live like all of the other families on our streets do. If you've really been touched. I mean, you can't just show up or dial it in. You used to play your part, but now it's different. As they said in Cat in a Hot Tin Roof, mendacity smells like death. Untruthfulness, not calling it out. Have you had your Lazarus moments? Have those strips that bound you fallen off? And do you have courage to look at the world and to say, no? I have been touched by something greater than this. And I will not be silent. You see, water finds water. And drop by drop, the tears of our sorrow and of our joy find each other. And they unite. And they unite with the one who brought all things into being, who looked at the formless void, the teeming waters, and he brought about life and light. And as we join with God Almighty and with each other, we start from this place and this time to talk about the love and the mercy of our Lord and our Savior, the mathematics of God. The smallest is the largest. The weakest is the most powerful. And even when all we can do is weep, we can also help others get up. And we can speak. We can say something. And as we say something, the next person says something. And eventually it becomes a revolution. And those mighty waters rain down like a flood. Those doctors at the hospital in Pittsburgh. What that shooter who said he wanted to kill all Jews didn't know. Is that several members of the team that operated on him that day. He was shot as he was shooting others. Were Jewish. They were the very people he intended to kill. Some of them actually attended the Tree of Life synagogue. Jeff Cohen, who I believe is his, that, I believe that's his name, who's the president of the hospital, came to visit with the shooter. The guard who was stationed at his door said, I, I don't know if I could have done that. And he said something to the effect of, I could do no other. You see, those people, while not touched by Jesus Christ, were touched by the love of God that influenced Christ and that influences each and every one of us today. That love, that mercy, that peace. And they acted that day in a way that told the world that they had been touched by that love, by that mercy, by that peace. And so many times I can't do it. So many times those straps of cloth have me tied in tight and they have my mouth shut. Lord, free me. Free us. Like tomorrow, Make us a temple 
of your presence. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit that we may act, that we may speak, that we may be beacons of light and love in the world. For the ways of God are good and powerful. Lord, use us for even the smallest person in the world with you can move mountains and the tears of one will join with those of our Lord and Savior and we will have our Lazarus moment and we will join with all the saints and it will be a mighty flood. Amen. Amen.